Amen, amen. Let's give God some praise one more time. Hallelujah. So glad to be with you guys this morning. Allow me to introduce myself. My mom always told me never talk to strangers, and I wouldn't want you to be in that predicament. My name is Pastor Cam Triggs. I pastor a, a church in Orlando, Florida. Any Orlando, Florida uh, natives? Anybody from Orlando, Florida? Nobody. Wow. Well, uh, I'm from Orlando, planning a church in the heart of the city. I'm married to my beautiful wife, Tamara Triggs, right here. Show some love to my wife. Got two kids, a four-year-old and a seven-year-old. Uh, their names is Cam and Karis. Uh, they are domestic terrorists in training. And uh, right now, they're in your kids' ministry, um, giving you guys a, uh, a, a reason to redecorate and I'm sure budget some renovations in your kids' ministry. Uh, I'm thankful also uh, to be here. Several times I've tried to work with uh, Pastor Paul to come here and uh, finally come to a point where it's able to work out. And I'm just thankful for his leadership, even in his absence. Can we give God a hand clap of praise for the amazing leadership? Pastor Paul, so glad to be here this morning. Uh, I have been looking forward to this. But my question for you this morning is, have you ever done something that you didn't want to do? Have you ever done something that God has called you to do that you did not want to do? What was that process like? How did that conversation go? What was that prayer like when God was moving upon your heart to do something you did not want to do? If you're like me, you're a hardhead. Maybe not in several situations at work or at school. Some of you, yes. But the truth is, many of God's children, if not all of them, are hardheads. When God calls them to do something, they don't want to do. If you allow me this morning, I'd like to entitle the message, Grace for Hard Heads. <laughs> if you have a copy of God's Word, turn with me to Jonah chapter 1. If you look up hardhead in your Bible dictionary, you will see a description of the prophet Jonah. Jonah is going to be called to do something that he does not want to do. Now, I connect with Jonah. In fact, in my ministerial journey, there was one point where God called me to do something I had no intentions to do, and that was youth ministry. I was an arrogant pastor in training. And I always thought in my mind that youth ministry was the JV League of ministry. Who wants to play for the J Junior Varsity team? But I believe that God called me into that particular ministry to train me, to prepare me, and to cultivate my heart for the next generation. What I believe we can capture from Jonah chapter 1 is this, that sometimes God can send us to unordinary places to do extraordinary things if we're willing to follow him in simple faith and obedience. Isn't that something? I extraordinary things when he calls us to these ordinary places that we do not want to go. See this in Jonah chapter 1. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. In the beginning of the reading of the Word of God, it says this. The word, word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. 
Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into, into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. But the Lord threw a great wind unto the sea. And such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid, cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down into the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. The captain approached him and said, what are you doing sound asleep? Similar words here. Get up. Call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. There was a little girl flying for the first time, new believer, going to visit some family on the West Coast. She was seated to a man with a large book by Bertrand Russell entitled, Why I'm Not a Christian. The little girl, encouraged to share her new faith, began to talk to this person, only to find out that he was a PhD and a philosopher at a top-tier university. They got into a conversation about faith and reason, and she began to say that she believed everything in the Word of God. The atheist philosopher turned to the little girl and said, how in the world could you believe that a man was swallowed by a big fish and survived? How could you even believe that story? She says, I don't know. I'll ask Jonah. He said, how could you ask Jonah? Well, when I get to heaven, I will ask Jonah. Uh, the atheist then responds, well, what if Jonah is not in heaven? Then she retorted, you ask him. <laughs> that little girl made a tremendous point, but probably lacked a little grace, much like the prophet in our text. God is telling Jonah to get up, rise up, go to Nineveh, and preach the good news. Uh, many times we face this great and precious news of grace with resistance, and over and over again, we try to please God with our own performance or our own standards, and other times we ask God for grace even though we're unwilling to give it to others. See, if we're going to talk about being gracious and on mission and Mission Hill, we're going to need God's grace to melt our hardened hearts in ways we haven't had it happen in a while. See, unless our hearts are captivated with grace, we will not be quick to share grace with others. If you don't believe God really and truly had to track you down in the same way he had to track down Jonah or send someone in the same way he sent Jonah to Nineveh, this good news will become old news to you. See, the truth is, myself and maybe many of you, you have spiritual amnesia. We forget who God is. We forget what Jesus has done. And we forget the amazing grace we have received. If I could leave you with one main point from Jonah chapter 1, it would be this. Grace is hard to believe. Hard to receive, and even harder to give. Hard to believe, 
Because sometimes we think, how could God love a wretch like me? It's hard to, to, to receive because sometimes we have to have this hard-headed mentality where we still work for our own salvation, and it's even harder to give because of this elevated view of ourselves. We look down on others. But this offer of grace is utterly shocking, isn't it? Uh, we have not witnessed anything like this grace in the world. See, this grace ultimately shows us that God loves us in spite of our sin. Uh, can we be honest? Uh, if we were God, we would save the not-so-bad people. We would save UCF Knights, not USF, of course. But it's interesting in the text, God starts with the worst, namely us. He saves religious hypocrites and rebellious terrorists all in one breath of grace. It's this idea that grace is merit in spite of demerit. It's an idea not of mercy, of not getting something you deserve, which is wrapped in punishment, but grace is positive, getting something you didn't deserve at all. And still, we often miss it, we don't grasp it, and we often don't cherish it. And that is the lesson of Jonah. That Jonah is going to see, listen to me friends, God saves people we overlook or even look down upon. Jonah here in this text is going to be a recipient of grace and then a message, messenger of God's grace. Man, if you see this text, the first thing I believe that grace does for us to melt our hard hearts and to enlighten our hard heads is grace fuels the Word of God. Notice what it says in the text, don't you? It says, the Word of the Lord came to Jonah. Nothing else. Jonah, what are you to tell the people of Nineveh? Not some more self-help news? Not about your famous podcast or a magazine article? You are not to share uh, the news of a political pundit or a news anchor. Jonah, I want you to share the word of the Lord. It's interesting because the Hebrew word for Amittai, the son of Amittai, means the son of truth. That Jonah is supposed to be somebody who tells the truth on God. And this word of God is this message of grace because God has heard about the evil in Nineveh and destruction should come, but if they surrender, they will receive grace. Now, it's even more gracious that God would even use Jonah, isn't it? I mean, he could have picked somebody who would have followed him at the first call. But that's not what Jonah does. Verse 3 says, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. Jonah is this runaway prophet, but over and over again we're seeing that this story is ultimately about God and God's plan. The big fish is mentioned four times. The city of Nineveh is mentioned nine times. Jonah is mentioned 18 times. But God is mentioned, listen to this, 38 times. This is about God's message of grace to go to a, a city, a, a people group that are far away from him. And God is going to use Jonah to go to Nineveh. Now see, Nineveh is, Nineveh is east of the Tigris River. It was an ancient city. It was large in size. Why, many cities only had one or two gates. 
Nineveh had 15 gates. Going to see in Nineveh, there, there are about 120,000 people there. It's a significant city historically because Nimrod in the book of Genesis founds Nineveh. It would be the Assyrian capital from time to time. But there's one problem with Nineveh. It's great in size, but also in sin. And the judgment of God is hanging over them. It says, uh, says in the text, their sin has come before me. Friends, that's why we need grace, isn't it? Romans 3 verse 23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The idea in the Bible is that this word sin is about one who pulls the arrow back and yet misses the mark. It's about one who strays away from the path. And because we have broken God's law, we deserve his just punishment. What is that punishment? Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages of sin is, that's in your Bible too, isn't it? You pay what you get. You pay and so in sin, then you will receive death. This, friends, is the bad news. This is what Nineveh needs saving from. They don't need a stronger political philosophy. They don't need more economics. They don't need better social structure. The ultimate problem Nineveh has is sin. And so, I come to you this morning to let you know that our greatest issue is sin. Many times we look outside of us, and we could say if I just had a larger paycheck, a larger house, a different environment, then these things would be fixed and my life would be better, believer or unbeliever this morning. But the truth is, the Bible tells us our greatest issue is not outside of us, it's inside of us. And we need a rescue from our sin. You know, the tough thing about this is that they were so deep in their sin, they probably didn't even notice it. Here's the thing about sin. Don't let anybody lie to you. Sin can be fun. Sin can be pleasurable. But sin always makes you pay long, more than you want to pay and stay longer than you want to stay. I don't know about you, but I love to watch the Discovery Channel or Animal Planet and peruse different channels to learn about the nature of animals. And on one particular show, they were debating whether or not you could have a wild animal as a tamed pet. Could you be Mike Tyson with a tiger? Or more simply, Michael Jackson with a pet chimpanzee named Bubbles. In fact, this particular show focused on chimpanzees and began to ask the question because of their character and their intelligence, could chimpanzees be pets? They began to survey one couple. They had a pet chimpanzee that was smart, amiable, and a great pet until the father figure of the home died. After that, he began to have temper tantrums and mood swings, and so they had to move the chimpanzee into a cage. But he was so intelligent that he broke out of the cage and threw a temper tantrum in the home, scaring the mother of the house, and she retreats in fear. She calls two people, 911 
and her best friend. Her best friend rushes over to the house to try to be a rescuer, and as she jumps out of the car, the chimpanzee jumps on her back, flips her over, and rips off her face. The owner of the chimpanzee has to jump on the back of the chimpanzee and stab it in the back till finally wounded, it runs back into the house and dies. Moral of the story, there's no such thing as a pet chimpanzee. Friends, I, I, I stopped by this morning to also let you know there's no such thing as a pet sin. You think you have it under control, but it has you under control. You think you have it hidden, but the eyes of the universe, God sees it, and it will be the end of you. Friends, surrender from your sin and run towards Jesus Christ and the Word of God. Romans 10 verse 17 tells us, faith comes by hearing and hearing of the Word of God. If you want victory over sin, you need the Word of God. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, the word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against you, God. Jonah is bringing a word of grace. The second thing it shows us, though, is that grace directs the will of God. Here, Jonah is asked by God to do something he does not want to do. Interesting in the text, if you break out a Bible atlas and begin to study geography to understand this text, it's almost comedic how far Jonah goes to escape the presence of God. Nineveh was about 500 miles north and to the east from where Jonah was. But Tarshish? Tarsus is almost 2,000 miles to the west. See what Jonah's trying to do here? He's creating a 2,500-mile gap between God's call and his hard head. How would you try to outrun God? I mean, he sees everything. He is everywhere at once. And God said, go east. And Jonah said, I'm going west. In fact, the text is explicit here. It keeps on saying down to Joppa, that he goes down into the ship, that, that he's, when he's thrown overboard, he goes down into the sea. He goes down into the belly of the great fish. This is not coincidental. This is intentional. It says anytime you run from grace, you always go down and never come up. So what does God have to do to send grace into Jonah's life and redirect him. He disciplines Jonah. Now, I know we don't often like to talk about discipline. We don't sing songs like, how great thou discipline. Amazing discipline. But discipline is grace. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that a father does not discipline a child that does not belong to him. I love the way the old church used to say that, that even when he chastises me, he has his hands all over me. So what does God do with Jonah? Verse 4, but the Lord threw a great wind unto the sea. And such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. Notice what their gods are doing, nothing. 
They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. Notice the impact of Jonah's disobedience on his psychology. He's stressed out, trying to sleep and avoid God's call. Yet the storm of God's grace is calling him back. And the creator sends a storm to gain back his son on a voyage towards grace instead of a voyage of sin and disobedience. Friends, one thing we can see is that our sin impacts others, right? These sailors are facing the consequences and ramifications of one man's disobedience. God is calling him back with grace and sends a storm to reroute him. There was a little boy out on a pond playing with his, his sailboat, and it begins to get out of his reach. He doesn't know how to get the, the sailboat to come back to him, so he runs and asks his older brother to come help him get his sailboat. He's thinking, my brother can swim. He can go out there and bring the sailboat back to me. But instead, his brother begins to pick up pebbles and rocks and starts to throw them at the sailboat. The little brother's freaking out. He's saying to his older brother, don't throw the rocks. You're going to sink my sailboat. Stop throwing the rocks. Stop throwing the rocks. You're going to sink my sailboat. But he begins to notice that the rocks are creating waves to bring the sailboat back to the shore. Friends, I don't know about you, but God sometimes sends a great wind or he throws rocks or he sends a storm to bring us closer back to him. And sometimes we go through financial scarcity to see him as a provider. And sometimes we go through a health scare to see him as a healer. And sometimes we go through loneliness to see Jesus as a friend. And what a friend we have in Jesus. So he disciplines them and he brings them back. And then, verse 6, the captain approached them and said, What are you doing? Sound asleep. Get up. Call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Come on, the sailors said to each other. Let's cast lots. Then we'll know who is to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots. And the lot singled out Jonah. Notice, Jonah, Jonah waits until he's caught instead of confessing. And even in that, God is going to give them grace. Verse 8, then they said to him, tell us. Who is the blame for the trouble we're in? What is your business and where are you from? What is your country and what people are you from? He answered them, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and dry land. Then the men were seized by great fear and said to him, what is this you've done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you? so that the sea will calm down for us. For the sea was getting worse and worse. He answered them. Listen to this very closely. Pick me up, throw me into the sea, so that it will calm down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this great storm that is against you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because of the sea was raging against them more and more, So they pick Jonah up and throw him into the sea. Notice, Jonah doesn't understand the grace of God here. 
that the grace of God is going to spare him and his friends. God continues to take his contempt and demonstrates compassion, and then Jonah offers himself up as a sacrifice because he is a guilty one so that others might be saved. This is an image here, but it's a shadow. It's a shadow of one greater than Jonah who would come to save us all. We were all on the ship that was facing destruction, and because of our own sin, the wrath of God was coming upon us. And Jesus, one who was innocent, who lived a perfect life, said to his father, lift me up that I may draw all men and women unto me and throw me into your wrath, throw me into hell, so that they might live and have everlasting life. Don't believe me? Earmark it. Matthew 12, verse 41. Jesus says the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. Mark 10, verse 45 tells us Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Romans 8, verse 1 tells us there is therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Friend, are you running away from God? I encourage you to run into the arms of the Father who loves you so much that he sent his Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That is grace. The last and third point here, though, is that grace aims at the work of God. And Jonah, I will save you. But notice I don't save you and just teleport you to heaven. You're still here. Why? I'm going to send you to Nineveh. Now, you got to understand, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. This was the worst of the worst. Ninevites were known for skinning people alive, decapitation, mutilation, ripping out the tongues of their enemies, making a pyramid of human heads and skulls, piercing their chins with a rope and forcing prisoners to live in kennels like dogs. Ancient records from Assyrians boast of this kind of cruelty as a badge of courage and power. There was a reason Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. He believed they rightly should be judged and face God's punishment. But remember, grace is hard to believe, hard to receive, and even harder to give. There was a rivalry between the Jews and the Ninevites. I mean a real rivalry. I'm not talking about USF or UCF. I'm not talking about Gators versus Bulldogs. I'm not talking about Celtics and Lakers. I'm not talking about the Bucks and whoever they play. No, no, no. This is Bloods and Crips. This is Israel and Iran. The, the idea of, of Jonah going to Nineveh would have been like somebody in the 1960s from the civil rights movement going to a sundown town ran by the KKK to do door-to-door -door evangelism. This is what God has called Jonah to do. You may die, 
Wouldn't it be interesting if you had bracelets that said, what would Jonah do? Where would Jonah go in Temple Terrace? Who would Jonah speak to in Tampa? Maybe it's those people that you stereotype because of their sin or isolate because of their culture. Maybe it's because of their political affiliation. Maybe it's because of the color of their skin or their socioeconomic background. Regardless of where you stand or, or what your, your particular Nineveh may be, God is saying that when you love Nineveh, you love like me. Because when I loved you, I loved the unlovable. When I loved you, I loved the mess. When I loved you, I loved you even though you were alien to me because I am holy and you are not. And when you love those who are unlike you, when you love those who cannot pay you back, you demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can I just be honest? Some of us need to go to Nineveh this week. Here's the sad thing. 82% of all unchurched people said they would attend your church if they were invited. But you know what else it says according to that study? Only 2% of church members have invited someone to attend in the last year. Isn't that what Jesus says? The harvest is plentiful. The problem isn't the harvest. We have a great city of Nineveh that needs the gospel. You know what's not the issue? The laborers are few. Sometimes the world is more ready to hear the gospel than we are to share it. God is calling us to Nineveh this morning to go with the good news because if he saved you, he can save anyone. Can we be honest that some of us, our Nineveh may not be socioeconomic barriers or overseas barriers. For some of us, our Nineveh may be the next generation. If God moved on your heart this morning and said, I need you to volunteer in kids' ministry, some of you would buy a ticket to Tarshish this morning. If God said, I need you to go on that student retreat, I need you to go to that student camp, some of you would be on your way to Joppa right now. But the truth is, God is calling us to the next generation because that is where the harvest feels ripe as well. Just making an application here that if we think about the, the people who are around us who need to hear God, it may not be overseas, it might be across the hall. It may not be overseas, it might be a, across the street. Let me just read for you some interesting statistics. Current Barna study indicates that nearly half, 43% of all Americans who accept Jesus Christ as their Savior do so before reaching the age of 13. Two out of three born-again Christians, 64%, made that commitment to Christ before their 18th birthday. 13% made their profession of faith while 18 to 21 years old. This is, this is crazy. Less than one out of every four born-again Christians, 23%, embraced Christ after their 21st birth birthday. Now, of course, Jesus can save whoever he wants to save. I believe Jonah 2 verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. But will we consider where the harvest is ripe this morning? Will we consider where the Lord 
is doing a massive work amongst the next generation and that the harvest is plentiful, but oftentimes the laborers are few. Here's the startling thing about this. Listen to me. Oftentimes the world is way more aggressive to win the next generation than the church is. And we wonder why the next generation is going in the direction it's going. Can I give you a historical example? You say a name you wouldn't expect to hear this Sunday morning. Adolf Hitler. In this campaign of xenophobia and genocide, he wrote this book called Mein Kampf, written in the 1920s, and Hitler said, whoever has the youth has the future. Even before they came to power in 1933, Nazi leaders had begun to organize groups that would train young people according to Nazi principles. By 1936, all Aryan children in Germany over the age of six were required to join a Nazi youth group. At 10, boys were initiated to the young people group, and at 14, they were promoted to the Hitler Youth. Their sisters joined the Young Girls Campaign and were later promoted to the League of German Girls. Hitler wrote this. He said, and I quote, These young people will learn nothing else but how to think German and act German, and they will never be free again, not in their whole lives. You know, there's been a fumble of the next generation. And I want you to know, in, in football, when there's a fumble, you know who gets the fumble? Whoever wants it most. I love this quote by Michael Catt. He says this, whoever wants the, this generation the most will win them. That's what I believe. That maybe this morning God is calling us to go and make disciples of the next generation. That maybe God is calling us to our Nineveh, a place that is hard, a place that we don't want to go to. Maybe it's the international mission field. Maybe it's with a national church plan. Maybe it is to the kids' ministry and student ministry here at Mission Hill. There's a young boy named Christopher Searcy. He's a teenager. And while they were playing basketball, he got shot. And his friends did their best to try to get Christopher to the hospital. And as they got in walking distance, they left him on the ground and rushed to the hospital to try to get assistance from the emergency room. But the emergency room had this policy that they could not go and get patients and bring them in. So they had to call for an officer to go get Christopher and bring him in, and Christopher would die waiting to get someone to bring him help and care. I wonder how many people around us will die and go to hell because we're waiting for them to come to church instead of the church going to them. Charles Spurgeon said, the good news is only good news if it gets there in time. And I'm praying that God would use graceful hard heads for us to invade the community after we gather that we would scatter and from our lips to unbelieving ears, we would see scales fall from people's eyes and hearts of stone turn to hearts of flesh and see this world turned upside down for Jesus. Here's, here's a beautiful thing. When Jonah preached the good news, what happened? A citywide revival. A place far from God came near because God sent someone with a message of grace. Let's pray. Father.
We come to you in the name of Jesus asking that first you would save those who are far from you this morning. Those who have never heard this good news that Jesus lived the life we should have lived and then he died the death we should have died. On the cross, Jesus takes our sins and in exchange gives us his righteousness. He was put in a borrowed tomb and the reason it was borrowed is because he would give it back. Three days later, he rose from the dead with all power, and he is soon to come again. There is somebody here this morning who does not believe that good news. Would they throw their faith and their trust on Jesus? The Bible tells us, if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord and Savior, we shall be saved. Confess him, friend. Speak to him right now. Ask God to save you from your sin and give you everlasting life. God, for the rest of us, would we be reminded of this grace, the scandalous love, reminded of the words of one preacher father that said, love that looks up is adoration, love that looks across is affection, but love that looks down is grace. And you found us. running away from you. You brought us in a relationship. You gave us new desires, new affections, new habits, new family, new life, new spirit. When we be reminded we can never pay you back for your love, but we can pass it on. And that people who have been found by your grace must go out and find others. Move us to reach the next generation. Move us to share the gospel with all nations, tribes, and times when we go and make disciples, not because we're trying to earn a place in heaven, but because we want a foretaste of what heaven will be. Very people group, worshiping you in spirit and truth, realizing the splendor and the majesty and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Remind us. We have good news to share with a world who desperately needs it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.